The Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hell world. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the bash in a global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are recording not live at the New School University, just steps from the gentrification ravaged Lower East Side in a student-occupied cafeteria in the dark heart of American empire, downtown Manhattan, USA. That's right, and we are proud to present our guest today, a uh, student occupier named Kay. Say hello. Hello. We're here sitting right now in a uh, pretty uh, a pretty quiet space. Uh, this is our first time that Antifada has actually got on the road together and recorded. We thought that uh, student occupation combined with student struggles is a uh, really great opportunity for us to get out from under Sam Cedar's thumb and uh, get out into the world. So uh, to kind of paint the picture of what we're seeing here, uh, students and workers have occupied this cafeteria on uh, 5th Avenue and 14th Street in Manhattan. There are signs everywhere outside. Uh, and as you walk up the steps and into the cafeteria area, there are tons of posters and pamphlets and stickers and uh, you know folks in various uh, levels of activity as the students have taken a very, very strong stand uh, not just you know, using their leverage as students uh, to push politics forward, but also in defense of both cafeteria workers and also graduate students, both of whom are attempting right now to uh, get good union contracts. So uh, yeah, I figured I'd start with some basic questions, um, like uh, who are you, what year? You don't have to tell us any personally identifying information if you don't want to, but um, how did you get involved with this uh, action here? Okay, well, I'm a junior here at the new school. This is my first year here. Um, I got involved because um, some of the cafeteria workers were outside flyering, um, and they were handing out information about what was going on and how they were going to lose their jobs, and I met Prince, and I was talking to him about what was going on, some of the cafeteria workers. Um, and he said that they were trying to organize an occupation of the cafeteria. And I was like, all right, well, I'm totally there. It sounds like a very good cause. I don't live on campus. I didn't really eat in the cafeteria at all, but yeah. You were, uh, you were hyped by the, by the opportunity to jump in uh, to a, a really good struggle on behalf of uh, these folks. Yeah, I mean, they're also really nice people, so. I imagine as students, um, you know, you say you don't eat at the cafeteria all the time, but uh, the folks that make and prepare and serve the food here are an important aspect of the community here at the university, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have been here longer than most students have, so as students cycle out, they are technically the backbone of the community because they are there, and they do form very meaningful relationships with students that they appreciate and also students appreciate, so I think they have much more of a claim to this space in this school than even some of the students do. Hell yeah. So um, how did this action begin? How did it develop into what's happening right now? Um, so I wasn't involved in the original organizing that was done by the communist student group and the Maoist student group. Um, so I, from what I know, they went around and they talked to cafeteria workers and they decided to hold this occupation on May Day. Um, International Workers Day, good yes. day for a fight. Yeah, definitely. And it's lasted for about two weeks now. So. 
Wow, how is everybody holding up here? Um, we've been, it's been really nice. Um, I came in here not knowing anybody, but now we're kind of like a family. We all take care of each other. Um, most of us are still going through finals, so Ooh. we're doing finals and the occupation, and we're continuing to organize, so there's definitely a lot on all of our plates, and no one sleeps that much, but we're trying the best we can. Wow, that's really impressive. Um, I remember when I was in college, and I was going through finals, and I just like didn't do anything else. In fact, funny story, people were talking about the uh, transit workers strike the other mm -hmm. day that happened. What year was that? 2003. Like, apparently it was pretty big. Uh, and they I was, shut the subways down for three days. And, like, I was in New York that at that point in time, and I'm like, why do I have no memory of this? Mm. Oh, it was during finals week. <laughs> yeah. Like, it started and ended while I was in the library, and I just didn't even know. Oh, um, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> not to date myself or anything, guys. And all of the our uh, college student uh, listeners right now are all getting anxious just thinking about finals as they're trying to enjoy a nice podcast. So it's nice <laughs> of us to, uh, to give them that. Yeah. Some of the students here, I've heard, are taking incompletes. They're, they're losing their jobs. Um, I mean, that's definitely been very stressful. I know that over the past two weeks, I haven't gone to work as much as I need to, so... Obviously, that is something to worry about. People have talked about taking incompletes, but a lot of people are also, we're still working to finish all of our papers and our finals, so um, we're kind of trying to power through and get everything done, which might be a bit of a stretch, but I think it's hopefully doable. Well, that's, uh, I think that there's real sacrifices being made by folks, but uh, they're righteous sacrifices and a righteous struggle. Um, go ahead, Andy. And speaking of, uh, you said earlier there's a lot on your plates, a huge part of this occupation has been replacing the, um, the labor of the cafeteria workers who are on were on strike um, and are, uh, have been paid for the entire time that they've been out, um, actually using the cafeteria to make meals for anyone who comes to the occupation, three meals a day plus snacks every day, which is really impressive. Uh, can you talk a little bit about organizing that and how it's gone? Yeah, you literally have a lot on your plates, huh? Yeah. You're, you're plating. Someone's doing the demi-gloss, you know, they're uh, you know, wiping the plates down, putting the yeah. garnish on top and everything like that. A little balsamic some, reduction. Yeah, there's some serious agate guide uh, shit right here. So go ahead. Um, so originally, it just kind of happened. One morning, myself and another student got up and we, someone donated all this food to us and we were like, oh, what do we do with this food? Um, so we decided to just put it out on plates and for people in the occupation, because the first night we had a lot of people sleeping over. Um, and then we noticed that a lot of students were walking by and were kind of confused why the cafeteria was occupied. And they were very concerned about where they were going to eat. So we kind of all decided that we should start making food for free and giving it to students, not just in the occupation, but everywhere, um, as a way to kind of make sure everyone's needs are met, but still disrupt what was happening and also to take away yeah, any profit that they could make off right. of the cafeteria. So we've been using um, dining dollars, which is just like the cafeteria money, I guess, um, off campus to buy food. And also we have a Venmo account, which people have donated to. So we go on grocery runs and buy food and make meals. It's been a really awesome thing. And we'll make sure that we put that uh, Venmo information in the show notes so that if people are interested in donating, they could do so. Nice. So one, um, one comparison I'd like to make that's really interesting is that this is similar to what you saw in the, the, these rolling teacher strikes mm -hmm. across the country over the last couple of months. 
where um, teachers, um, while they were on strike, obviously, you know, children and parents were not getting the services, you know, that they needed. Mm -hmm. So teachers were stepping up out of their own pocket and with their own time in order to provide things like meals and um, uh, child care and things of this sort. So that, you know, even though they're out on strike for their own rights and for workers' rights in general, they're also aware that the community still has needs, right? And so we can provide that ourselves, try to create a sort of grassroots way of doing that so that people can still get the things done that they need to get done, but workers can get a contract and the struggle can continue. Yeah, like a lot of what happens when people go out on strike, I think, especially like teachers, is um, whoever is trying to end the strike is like, look what they're doing to people. How think could of the you children. Do, how could you do this? Think of the children. How could you do this to the kids who rely on school for free lunch or the cafeteria here? And like, that's a really, really good way to, you know, both because it's the right thing to do and because it's strategically wise. That's right. I mean, the workers were also involved. Um, Prince was teaching me how to use uh, the hot plates and also the deep fryer. Um, sadly, they turned off all the gas and uh -huh. they shut off a bunch of the power and the sockets in the kitchen. So it is kind of a hard space to work in, but um, since the workers did teach us how to kind of make do with some of the equipment that was already there, we've kind of been able to take it over and do whatever we want. Wow, that's pretty neat, especially considering like, I guess, I don't know if irony is the correct word for this, but like, I know they were trying to... Uh, pit students against the cafeteria workers by saying they're going to replace them in some of their jobs and uh, students were like no that's ridiculous and now they are doing those jobs but only in support of the cafeteria workers. Yeah I mean I think the main point behind that was pitting students against workers but also the whole unionization aspect um, to get rid of the unionized cafeteria workers um, but yeah I mean it's been pretty cool though. I mean, I like cooking, so <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty fun. And have you been sleeping here uh, consistently for the whole two weeks? Yeah, I've slept here every single night. Wow. wow. And how many people are, are the core group of uh, all day, all night occupiers, would you say? I would say probably around 20 people. That's a rough estimate. And what's though. the most you've ever had on one night? I think the first night, can't give you a number, but the first night we definitely had a lot of people nice. um, in the cafeteria. There was not that much space for people to sleep, but it was kind of like, no one really cared about that. And you do have uh, a lot of air mattresses, a lot of blankets, but unfortunately, no way to turn off the lights. Oh man. Yeah, um, there's a few things that we've kind of made jokes about, like the lights, we can turn the lights off in the cafeteria itself, but not the outside, so we're like, oh. It's an intimidation tactic. They're trying to keep the lights on all the time to make us forget the time of day. And then there's also this uh, grease trap in the dishwasher room that smells really bad. So we make the joke that like, oh, they're trying to like make it smell bad, so we'll leave. <laughs> or they turn the heat down and we're like, they're trying to freeze us out. So there's kind of just like a lot of jokes around that. I mean, it's fine. We do have a lot of beds and um, blankets, but. Yeah. Well, that's actually interesting because uh, another question that we had was, um, you know, how is the administration and, and the management of this food service com uh, company here um, dealing with this situation? You know, what's their reaction? What's their position? Uh, what have they said to folks, uh, not just workers, but also students? Um, students, they really, as far as campus-wide, they haven't 
really said much. They've released a few emails, but only when they do something good. So um, within the first couple days around, they announced that they would be hiring the workers back, but the next day they rescinded that. Um, but they only sent an email out how they were going to hire the workers back and not. So it's been kind of hard to combat all the emails and newsletters that they do send out because it makes people think that the occupation's not going on, or even with the grad students, it's the strike's not going on because the emails are like, oh, well, we negotiated or we settled or it stopped. Um, so that's kind of difficult because they have access to the whole school and we don't. Um, but we have been putting up a shit ton of posters everywhere. Sadly, a lot of them that are in very visible places, like in the front of the school, have been taken down. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how you guys are getting the word out. Are you using social media? Are you creating yeah. your own alternative networks? We have uh, social media accounts on basically all the main things. We have a Twitter, a Facebook group. Um, someone also does Snapchat. Um, so we are kind of trying to put the word out through that. Um, also trying to use like the new school hashtag to reach people who aren't necessarily within the occupation who might go to the new school or looking something up so they could stumble upon that information. Also people coming into this space um, will obviously find out about it. Sometimes they're really shocked and they're like, what the heck is going on? Um, but that's also good. We've kind of been dealing with a lot of people giving very negative feedback, but I think that if it can make them feel something, even if it is complete anger or disgust or inconvenience, at least they are feeling something and kind of acknowledging the situation. Yeah, who who is giving you that feedback? Is it other students? Yeah, there's been some students who have said stuff like, oh, well, that's such a waste of printing credits to print all these posters. Or <laughs> wow. like, Oh, my God. Yeah, people can be pretty harsh. Or they're like, oh, you guys are ruining everything because I can't go to get breakfast in the morning, which we're like, well, we're making breakfast anyway. So like, <laughs> nothing, there's not much to complain about. I mean, students do have different opinions on stuff. Um, it's a very wide-ranging university, right? There's yes. It goes from Parsons to Lang to New School for Social Research. There's also a... Uh, People might not know what that is, babe. Copa. Yeah. Menace. There's a fashion school, right? Fashion school, liberal arts school, jazz school, performing arts school, and then new school for social research, research which is like kind of liberal. I don't know how to describe social research stuff. So mm -hmm. so so it's not just that the administration has a stranglehold on information. It's also that there's people in all these different divisions within the university, mm -hmm. uh, so there's some sort of separation between the students themselves anyways. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult to, to bring folks together, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, we've tried what, a few days. We've done like classroom interruptions where we'll go and knock on the door and ask the professor, hey, can we make an announcement? So we were doing that before the strike started um, and also during the occupation to tell them about, like, don't cross the picket lines or, you know, this is why the strike's going on. This is how you can support it. Like, even if you do have class or finals, there are other ways you can support it. Um, some people were pretty receptive. Other people were not. So we did have some debates with some students and professors who weren't necessarily as into it as they could have been and were supportive, but there were also a lot of people who were. So I talked to a student the other day. I was at the picket line, and she just needed to print out her paper. Yeah. And she was really concerned about crossing the picket line. That's and great. she's like, does anyone know where I can go to print my paper where yeah. I won't be crossing the picket line? And yeah. one of my DSA comrades helped her 
Yeah, um, we've been trying to come up with alternative ways of doing that. We've been like, oh, you know, there's coffee shops where you can go work. You can also go to the NYU library because we do have access to that library. I think it's a matter of people don't want to be inconvenienced and have to go somewhere else, but there's definitely a lot of options. Cool. Um, oh, we have a few more questions written down here. Um, have there been any internal divisions since this started? Like, how's everyone getting along? Um, I mean, I think that with movements, it's very important to internally critique yourselves because um, I think that can only make you stronger. Um, there has been some divisions between students who aren't associated with any group and students who are associated with groups such as the Communist Student Communist Party and the Maoist group, but I think that's because we have different reasons for being here or different motivations behind it, but I think ultimately you know, a bunch of people with a bunch of different political ideologies were able to come together and create this movement. Um, so I think that we're a lot more united than we are divided. In the course of these two weeks, what were the processes that you put in place in order to do decision making, you know, between these different groups, between these different factions of students? Um, so the communist student group definitely took the lead in the beginning a lot, um, but then there was some pushback against it because people wanted to be better represented and better involved in the organizing and a bunch of other stuff. So we ended up breaking off into different committees and having general assemblies either once or twice a day to kind of go over what should happen during the day or plans for later. So we have like a security committee um, with people who deal with people coming in and out or a strategy committee for escalation or de-escalation tactics, a media committee, a kitchen committee. So we kind of all broke off into little groups in order to support everything. Cool. Well, we haven't mentioned yet that you won almost all of your demands, right? Yes. A lot of the demands have been met, but it's only an agreement. It's not a contract. Um, they're not willing to negotiate any further, but one of the main demands is that um, the head chef has been sexually harassing um, some people in the kitchen. Um, there have been workers who have come forward and voiced this concern with a lot of the students. Um, so that's one of our main demands that's not being met because um, obviously it would be very bad press for the new school, but also um, the union seems to think it's a more internal issue um, that they should deal with. But a lot of the workers, you know, it's people shouldn't feel unsafe in their workplace and people shouldn't A, be getting sexually harassed in their workspace. Um, also, there was like a whole thing about how he doesn't clean um, like fry baskets or whatever, so sometimes he'll fry vegan food with things that have been touching meats or cheeses. So a lot and of people... I used to be vegan and yeah. I would not like that. Yeah. Also people who were halal oh, kosher, right? Yeah. So oh, yeah. people are very not happy over that as well because one of the workers, um, Joy, she was like, you all might think that you're vegetarians or vegans <laughs> or kosher, but guess what I'm telling you? Oh, you no. ha if you've been eating here, you're not anymore. Oh, there's pork in everything. Oh, no. And yeah. Can't I know something like that? Vegetarian, vegan-oriented school. Yeah, there's a lot of people who yeah. wow. support that. Uh, what I think is impressive is that... Um, what you're doing in that demand in order to try to get this guy removed is you're crossing the bounds of what uh, is supposed to be acceptable. You're not supposed to be able to democratically decide or through protest decide what 
management is allowed to do in terms of who they hire to run things, right? You're breaking into this sort of managerial prerogative, this managerial um, right to choose who they want to have to run the place. Mm -hmm. And just by putting that demand in, you're automatically sort of scrambling, you know, the kind of hierarchies that exist within a workplace. And I find that very impressive. Yeah, like, did they know? Did the union know about this guy? Did they have a chance to deal with him and they just weren't? I mean, um, it has been revealed that he was transferred from his previous jobs over, allegations is a shitty word, but over sexual harassment before, so it's not as if he hasn't done this before. I guess you can kind of compare it to the whole priest thing where they just kind of move people around and don't deal with the issue. I honestly don't know what information the union has or how they have, I mean, obviously I don't think they've attempted to deal with it, but um, I don't have that information. Yeah. yeah, I think it kind of speaks to the shortfalls of unions sometimes, especially when they're organized in a top-down way um, in terms of protecting people against stuff like that. Like, I remember a big article came out, like, during the height of Me Too, mm. when, um, uh, which, which company was it? It's like a car company. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, so it was at the Ford plant in Chicago where... Um, a bunch of women workers had their sexual harassment complaints basically swept under the rug. And uh, it took until this time story came out, and I imagine, you know, some bottom-up action because they had to, to decide to speak on the record about it yeah. in order to fix this problem. And now, guess what? They're fixing it. There, there is certainly a strong left critique of the top-down bureaucratic and conservative nature of unions. But one thing that can be said for them is that they are open to reform uh, and they are open to some degree of workers' democracy. If you don't have a union, there's no way that folks are going to get together and address issues like sexual harassment you know, on the job or any other issue, right? So just to have that in place shows that you have a basis for workers' power. Now, whether you use it or not you know, is a question that's based on the social forces and the degree of consciousness that folks have. But um, there has actually been, at least me to another point, there's been a strike here, right? An actual strike? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So there's the Graduate Student Union, SENS, which is um, united with the uh, United Auto Workers. Um, so they're having a strike because um, they have first, uh, I think it was two years ago, or a few years, yeah, recently, in recent history, um, they were attempting to unionize um, as student workers and the school wouldn't let them so they went through legal means because they said like you can't legally stop us from unionizing um, so that's been a whole ordeal and then they were asking for health care and higher wages because a lot of graduate students work multiple jobs and when you're teaching and you're doing something else you know and also doing your dissertation that's a lot to put on someone's plate um, so they went to the negotiation table, from my knowledge, like way too many times, um, and none of their demands were being met, so they decided to call the strike, even though they had, they had been planning it for months in advance. Um, it's been pretty cool. I went to the picket lines every day also. Um, it's pretty fun. I think at least two out of three members of Antifada crew have uh, joined the picket lines. Andy, I was on the picket lines. All right, three yeah. out of three. That ain't bad. All Whoa. of Antifada has been on the picket lines. Hell yeah. Ourselves. Uh, we came down to support on the first day, and uh, 
we'll do so in the future for all pickets. Yeah, I came a couple times actually. I came on May first with the DSA, mm. and we came and sang some songs. And that was pretty awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it seemed like a good vibe in there. Yeah. And then we came back uh, the other day after the uh, building trades rally in Union Square. Brought a few uh, Sean's hard hat buddies over and did some more picketing. Uh, one thing that we should talk about is uh, sort of the interesting convergence of these two strikes because the cafeteria workers, the, the school's plan, uh, and, and they phrase this in this very like, um, we're, like kind of liberal, like we're going to do something good for the community kind of way of we're going to get rid of this contract with Chartwells, mm -hmm. which is an outside food contractor, and replace it with in-house food service so everything's going to be local, more organic. Yeah, they we're did say that. We're going to as a community Green what kind washing. of food. And the food's going to be made by people in the community. And what this yeah. means, of course, is it's going to be made by academic student workers, workers who are, you know, maybe getting a little bit off their tuition, but much more heavily exploited than a full-time worker um, that, that currently works in the cafeteria. And uh, this has basically been the strategy of, of private universities and public universities in the United States for a long time, of having a sort of hybrid student worker class uh, that is heavily exploited to be TAs, to be RAs, to have the, the school function without paying people a fair wage. I'm like, I'm sure you guys are doing a great job cooking, but like, this isn't unskilled labor. Like, yeah. I talked to a student the other day who was like, it's not safe to have a student who doesn't know what they're doing run an industrial-sized grill. I mean, we can't use the industrial-sized grills. We're using hot It might be for the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were safety concerns about that. I mean, I've been cooking most of my life. I know that I need to wash my hands and wear gloves and, like, <laughs> stuff. Um, but, yeah, that has been a concern that sadly not many of us not all of us don't necessarily have the proper certifications that are required by the state, which were kind of like, don't shut us down. But um, Oh, I mean, I was talking about like what the university was trying to do. Oh, 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 yeah, the university, that's also messed up. Like, you guys are definitely doing your best under difficult circumstances. Yeah, I think that what the university was trying to do is just trying to save money and also exploit more students, but... But I yeah. think what's interesting, and, and you pointed to this, Kay, and, and Andy mentioned it too, is, uh, is the propaganda aspect of it and the mm -hmm. use of ideology for it. Because, you know, the, there was a degree of greenwashing, as they call it, right? Because they're saying everything's going to be locally sourced yeah. and, you know, you know, we'll be able to kind of like, you know, have more organic and, you know, natural produce. And we're not going through this big Chartwell Corporation. Very similar to what Israel does, you know, for example, with pink washing, right? Saying, oh, we're the most friendly LGBT country, you know, in that entire region. So clearly we must be doing nothing wrong. Um, but also this concept, too, that, oh, you know, we're going to insource things back into the community instead of them having, you know, being outsourced to this union chartwell company. Well, there's a real reason why the student community here in downtown, Mount ha downtown Manhattan, and if folks don't know, uh, the area around the new school is a very, very expensive area. The Union Square area, the West Village area, the East Village area, the Lower East Side area. I'm pretty certain that unless there is a, I don't know, public housing provision, that the people who are working in the cafeteria, even for union wages, are not part of, quote unquote, the community because they can't live in Manhattan down yeah. here in this. They're coming from maybe from Flatbush, maybe from the Bronx, they're maybe coming from New Jersey, right? So this conception that, oh, we want you know, things to happen and be produced closer to here with people who are more involved, I think goes to show how 
you know, how, how striking the difference between the students and the workers are in a sense. But what you've been able to do is overcome that divide, right? By saying, we refuse to essentially scab on these good union workers and replace their jobs and be exploited ourselves for something they should be able to feed their families with and pay their bills with. Yeah. Yeah, like what does that even mean? Is there a farm in the East Village that they're getting the <laughs> oh, produce from now? They, um, actually, if you go out into the cafeteria, there's a, this designed picture of turning the cafeteria into a green space and like planting plants. So I don't know if that's where they're going to grow their vegetables, but it's like hanging plants all over the place. But we also have, we make a lot of jokes because that's how we get by. But <laughs> we also made the joke that if we continue the occupation, um, and since we're kind of running the kitchen as our own little co-op, that the school would try to co-opt that and be like, look, our students are <laughs> being self-sufficient and they're making like their own food. This is why we should do it. You're like totally selling point. <laughs> I can see it too. Well, well, this is the roots of the social justice center upstairs, right? There was because there's been a history of occupations at this school in 2008, 2009, and 2011. And the uh, in 2011, because in 2008, 2009, the the administration just arrested people. Yeah. In 2011, they had like a slightly nicer president, David Van Zandt. You know, still the same policies, but like a, yeah. a friendlier face on them. And I am President <laughs> Jerry Brown. Yeah. Sorry, Ted Kennedy reference go on. Uh, and he said, okay, students should have a space where they can, you know, write on the walls and organize and do whatever they <laughs> Knock want. Knock yourselves out. Yeah, but, uh, There's a ball pit. You could uh, pretend you're throwing the Molotovs, but they <laughs> Yeah, but it has to be very controlled and out of the way of any actual functioning of the school. And so when they rebuilt this building on the fifth floor, there's something called the Social Justice Center, um, <laughs> which I, got, I saw for the first time the other day. How was it? Uh, it, it was, there, it's just, there's just all these lists of rules on the wall, like, <laughs> well, who's allowed to go in well, there. no, they recently, um, there was a fight by students of color to make it an affinity space, or part of it an affinity space for students of color, which was a very long fight that people had, um, but they were able to, to make part of it that, which also goes into the struggle of everything else that's going on because a lot of people did not like that or thought they were being excluded but it's like get over your white fragility that you can't go into a space like you don't use every classroom you don't go into the parsons classes if you're at lang like it's just one space that you're not going to use that other people need so well to be clear that's a room within the social justice center so yeah. when i first enter the social justice center there's uh this it says this is a space for and there's like you know 15 um, categories mm -hmm. and I believe that's actually supposed to include everyone you know mm -hmm. it doesn't <laughs> like uh, like anyone's allowed to go into that that room but then there's a room inside of the room that says this is not for cis yeah. white men this is for indigenous people people of color queer people etc mm -hmm. um, so but the effect of that although I you know I, I agree with the sense that there should be this uh, this space that is you know somewhat exclusive um, is that you're just entering a space that's just filled with like regulations and identities and there's no sense of what else that space is meant to be for. I mean it wasn't being, I mean basically they want to use it for, um, for identity student groups to have meetings there because although it is called the social justice hub, most people who use it were just studying there. Wow. It wasn't actually being used for any political action or planning or whatever so, so by making real, it. Uh, it was a real success then. Yeah, because for out them. Of this, this two or three years of uh, student struggle, they managed to contain it into a space that then ended up becoming emptied of mm. most yeah. political 
content at the end of the day. So I guess I bet they, they put that in the brochures, though. Yeah, I mean, they plug that they have a social justice hub, but most people don't use it that way. Now, that brings me to another question, Kay, uh, because I think the new school as, in general tries to brand itself as a very open-minded and free and liberal environment for study. Do you think that their attempt to portray themselves as a very woke university, as a very inclusive university, as a very socially just university, has actually given you some leverage because you've been able to push back against that narrative? Um, I mean, it can be hard working within neoliberalism because they will always try to flip it and be like, look at our brochures, look at all the diversity on our brochures. And it's like, well, when you actually do come into the space, it is a majority white space, you cannot avoid that or you know they I think it's kind of hard it's a lot harder within universities that brand themselves that way because I think people are less likely to believe you they'll be like oh well it's an inclusive space or it's a social justice space so when you're like oh well this racist thing is happening or this other thing is happening they're like well not at this school and it's like well yes at this school because we're still in a white supremacist society, even if you're within these four walls. So, you know, you can't just get away with that because your school says it's inclusive. Now, you say that the vast majority of the students are white. Would you say that the security guards, uh, the janitorial staff, and the cafeteria workers are all white? No, they're, white? they're all people of color. All the majority of, color. of them are. Yeah. So there's a real um, division, a real divide there. Yeah. So that's part of one of the things you've had to overcome, right? Uh, not only pointing out to the um, administration and university and students and everybody that it's actually, um, there is an issue where if you have the working people at this university who do the day in and day out work that it takes in order to make it run, and they're working class, mostly people of color, right, on the one hand, and then you claim diversity on the other hand, and you have almost all white students, right? Clearly, this is, there is still a, uh, a split. You know, there's still a division there, a racial division of labor that happens within the university, right? Yeah, definitely. Also, most of the departments, the majority of professors are white also, which is kind of, it's bad because you shouldn't really be, ha I mean, this is a whole other debate, but you probably should not be having white people teaching the history of slavery or some other classes that, you know, people of color could teach in a lot more effective way. And that's not to say that all labor should come down to people of color educating other people. It's just to say that there's way too much whiteness and in investing in whiteness in all the departments. It also kind of puts the lie to like a lot of critics, I think, want to paint an action like this as like a bunch of privileged kids or privileged white kids, students who are like out of touch with reality, just like doing naive things with their privilege but like they're using their you're using your privilege for good because like a lot of these workers probably don't have the ability to like occupy a space for days on end because they have families to take care of and it just seems like a really inspiring example of like cross-class solidarity or whatever you want to call it yeah i mean there's still been some issues that have arisen in the space, obviously, because there's still issues at the university, which have been hard, to, not hard to overcome, but have caused some splits um, and debates. Debates are always great, um, as long as you attempt to resolve them in a way that everybody understands. 
Yeah, in terms of what's happening right now and what you all want to see happen in the near future, like what are your, your current prospects? Um, well, we have been talking about whether we want to continue occupying this space or not, and if the struggle um, or this movement, if you can call it a movement, um, if it's contingent on being in a particular space or on taking direct action. Um, so we have been talking about whether we want to stop occupying or not, um, but we definitely want to do it on our terms and not the administration's terms. They recently asked us to vacate peacefully. Um, that sounds like a threat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was worded just like, yeah, students, please vacate peacefully. And we're like, no, we're not going to leave because you told us to. Um, so we're working on tactics to exit, um, not to end everything that's going on, but to exit the physical space um, to work on other strategies of hopefully gaining leverage over the administration, hopefully to get the chef fired because that's the one thing that mainly hasn't been met. Um, so we've been talking about, like, oh, if he doesn't get fired, we can, like, go in every day and, like, heckle him or something like that, or find out other ways. We've started social media campaigns to get more people to notice, because hopefully parents... I mean, I don't know any parent who would want their child in a space with a person like that, or also, um, like, more importantly, workers should not be in a space like that. Um, so we have been working on a lot of tactics to move forward into the future. Whether that means we continue to occupy or not, we're not entirely sure. That's a current open debate, but we're still hoping to continue a lot longer. And as this semester winds down and a lot of folks go away for the summertime, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of talk in that period, in that time, about what's going to happen on the first day of fall semester, right? I, I'm yeah. assuming people want to hit the ground running. Um, right now we're mainly working on what we're going to do because a lot of people are making plans to head home. Um, and since we are currently occupying the space, that would leave us very vulnerable. So we're trying to think of immediate things and then once we cover all the immediate issues that are, we're facing, then we're going to work on a plan over the summer for when school starts up again. How can people follow what's going on uh, with the occupation? Yeah, and, and help, how can people help? So we do have um, all the social media platforms, so sharing all that information would be really good, donating to the Venmo, but also people can come stop by, like the Social Democrats have come, the anarchists have had a whole meeting here, um, we've had a lot of people coming through to support us. We were having teach-ins almost every day, so we've had people from Occupy Wall Street stop in. Today there was a teach-in with the West Virginia teachers who came. Um, so we are getting a lot of people involved, and we're hoping to have more teach-ins and inviting more people into the space, whether they do go to the new school or not. So if anyone is in the area and they want to check it out, then that would also be amazing. And we'll be sure to put all those links in the uh, podcast yeah. description for the show. Yeah. I mean, we're not the biggest podcast in the world, but we're going to do our part to spread the word. That's right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Solidarity. Forever. Solidarity. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's now a little bit later, 
and I thought we should go back and contextualize some of the actions that we've been seeing and dealing with at the new school because uh, we like to think big here at the Antifada and we like to ground our discussions in history. And luckily we have a couple of experts here today, so Hello. I'm... Hey, Andy, I... Space Pearl. Andy talks now, it's fucking great. So uh, yeah, I thought I would ask a few uh, open-ended questions to uh, get the ball rolling in this conversation. So. Um, like what is the history of the university itself? Um, maybe you want to start by talking about that and the different roles it's played in society through time. Yeah, sure. I think that's actually a really good way to uh, take the particular of this university struggle and try to generalize it. And I always personally like to go back to history because I think that you can't really understand where we're at unless you understand uh, where we came from. Um, an entire history of the university or higher education uh, would take us back about 2300 years uh, to uh, ancient, I'm sorry, 21 BC with ancient China. We don't have to go there. BCE, uh, please. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, secular, secularization of that because that's actually something we'll talk about. Um, you know, there have been higher education structures, obviously, you know, the uh, gymnasia that were in Greece, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all that good stuff. Uh, you had uh, madrasas that came in the Middle East, a uh, large one in actually in Africa, in Timbuktu, one of the greatest centers of learning, the Library of Alexandria. You had um, uh, university-type uh, structures in India and elsewhere. But to focus just on the West, and in particular the United States, because I think that kind of grounds us in what we're looking at when we talk about the modern university. Universities arrive in the Middle Ages that's very important because the word university comes from the Latin word universitas, uh, which essentially means a corporation or an association or a guild. And so in the medieval period, when universities were first arriving in their modern form in Europe, it was essentially an association or a guild of students and teachers who came together to self-manage a learning process in a time when mostly that was uh, theology. Right? because obviously the church was a huge influence at that time. If you push things forward and then you bring things to the United States, of course the first universities that arrived, does anyone know what the first university in the U.S. was? I do not. Park the car at Harvard. Harvard? Yes, yes. Yale. Yale was actually, interestingly, Yale was the second. Yale was a uh, Harvard, uh, which was formed by the Puritans as a theological seminary, actually chartered by the state of Massachusetts, the colony. Um, they start the teachers and students started to get a little bit too radical for their puritanical mm. thought. They started to get a little liberal in their theology for the wow. late 17th wow. century. So Yes, exactly. They ruined a good thing. Uh, these uh, uh, uppity students uh, decided to start, you know, bringing uh, some... Showing their ankles off and everything. All sorts of uh, I mean, it risque was, behavior. It was probably all men, but uh, they weren't supposed to show their ankles either. And they were not supposed to condemn things like burning women, you know, or... You know, any of that stuff. So Yale actually started as a uh, orthodox breakaway from Harvard, interestingly. Mm. So, again, to move things forward very, very quickly, because there's a lot of history here, you have these uh, original private universities that are somewhat, you know, associated with the colonies and certainly associated with uh, religion and Protestantism specifically until right after the revolution with the first basically secularized uh, university, public university in the United States, which is the University of Virginia. And that was founded by Jefferson, a great bourgeois revolutionary. 
uh, certainly was problematic on many issues, including uh, race issues and Native American issues, but he was a strong secularist. He was an Enlightenment figure, and he did fight in the U.S. Uh, Revolution uh, and help form the Constitution, all that good stuff. So you start to see the university in a small way come as a secularized institution, away from theology, more about liberal arts. And the next great uh, bourgeois revolutionary figure named Abraham Lincoln comes along in 1862, and he forms a land-grant program, which essentially sets aside land so that uh, states can have their own public universities, right? The whole system that we know of today as the state university system goes way back to the period of the Civil War. Now, are, are you following me so far? This isn't too much too fast or You're any saying questions? Lincoln did some good stuff. Lincoln was all right, and uh, what's his face? Jefferson, yeah, he, he was decent too. Uh, they were kind of at the forefront of the creation of the, of the U.S. secular university, right? Not theology. We're going to deal with things like... Um, Originally in the land-grant colleges, it was about agriculture was the big thing. Well, what we would term, I think now, uh, agronomy, you know, studying better ways to make crops as in a big agrarian nation, right? Uh, later, uh, it becomes, engineering becomes a thing in universities uh, to go along with the liberal arts co conception. So the university remains a very, very small part of not just education, but life in the United States. So in the year 1900, there's only 160,000 students in university. In the entire and United who, States. Who were these students? Were they mainly from the upper classes? Yes, it was a very, very rarefied group of people. You, when you think of Harvard and Yale and Brown and Princeton, right, these original universities, you think of wasps and you think of a uh, upper crusty, uh, snobbish education in the classics and the liberal arts, right? Yeah, I'm to... picturing Mr. Burns in his Yale uniform. <laughs> as as well, you should. He was probably class yeah. of I don't know 1930 yeah, or Columbia 1913. Too. They've got the names of all those old dead white men right up there on the library, you know? They sure as on the On the ionic columns of the library. It is quite a beautiful library and a beautiful campus. If you go to all of these, I think you can really see uh, the history of the university express itself in the architecture, right? It's not for nothing that things look very old, they look medieval, they look austere, they look, but they look, you know, like a place of learning, like we, yeah. what we would imagine a place for free in inquiry and free thought would look like, right? Yeah, I mean, Low Library at Columbia looks like the Pantheon, and I know that because I had to study ancient Greek and Roman architecture there. Ah, see, that's a little left over from the old uh, classical education. That's mm -hmm. certainly uh, Columbia and a lot of the private schools still have. Public schools, that's changing a bit, as we'll see. They got a real hard on for those ancient Greeks. Who doesn't? <laughs> um, so the real sea change, what brings us to basically the um, implantation of the university as not just a very important rite of passage for young American people, many young American people, not all, uh, but also as a kind of cultural touchstone for understanding what it means to be upwardly mobile, you know, to be a middle-class American, as they say. We, don't, we only really get to that point in the post-war period, right, after the Second World War. And of course, the impetus for that is GI Bill basically offers for veterans of the war, especially white ones. It was a lot harder if you were a person of color, but it offers uh, offered them opportunities to get housing in the suburbs. But very importantly, the GI Bill basically covered up to 80% of the cost of one of these very cheap public universities for all veterans, which meant almost every single man of you know, military age in the United States. So at this point in time, the university goes from a very rarefied thing meant to reproduce an upper class, a ruling class in this country, 
and it becomes somewhat democratized, right? It becomes open to more and more people in the U.S. And with that, you see a massive influx of students, obviously, many of them coming from the um, more privileged sectors of the working class, and most especially, too, in this new 1950s and 60s economy, it's necessary to have more highly trained uh, individuals coming out of these schools with certifications because the economy is humming, right? The bourgeois economy is humming. You need more middle managers, uh, professionals like doctors and lawyers. You need more and more of them too with the baby boom. And so essentially by the 1960s, the university becomes this institution in American life and it becomes one that more and more people are having access to. Um, yeah, I think my uh, grandpa actually benefited from that after the war because he was uh, pretty poor. He grew up in, uh, Oh, am I going to get this wrong? Newark, the Jewish ghetto where Philip Roth was from, too, and uh, ended up getting his Ph.D. from Yale after he came back from the war. And he would not have been able to do that if it weren't for all of these great public programs. Yeah, they were, um, I think, specifically tailored to um, reorganize society, uh, reorganize the economy as the United States came out of the Second World War because the big fear amongst a lot of the ruling elites and certainly business people was that we'd be flung in back into the Great Depression because for all the things that the New Deal did in order to ameliorate the you know poverty, the immiseration of a lot of people in the United States, it never actually solved the uh, economic crisis of the Great Depression. So one of the ways that you could do that, right, is to essentially get people out into suburbs with all the ancillary costs that that includes, like highways, cars, rubber, oil, houses, and all that good stuff, right? But also to basically react to a diversifying economy by pumping money into the higher education sector so that you can have a very diverse and skilled workforce in a growing economy. Follow me somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, this is like a school for school. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to do this not in, in lecture format. Uh, I am falling asleep. History. All right, you're falling asleep. Well, that's like all of us when we're, we're sitting in class. I think what we're really interested is, in is two things, right? I talked about democratization, and then I talked about the, the late, late, early, early, I should say, history of the university as a guild structure, somewhat autonomous. The democratization of the higher education in the country in the 50s, 60s, and 70s makes it like the rest of society, the rest of capitalist society, U.S. society, a site of struggle. You see this early with McCarthyism, as a lot of leftist professors are you know, basically thrown out of the universities. Uh, but then, of course, you see a reaction to that, uh, when that when the Cold War chills out a little bit in the 60s with the rise of mass student movements. And we're familiar with all of these, right? You have uh, SDS. Uh, you obviously have the anti-Vietnam War um, protests that happen on campuses all over the place. Uh, you have mass student strikes that come from the killings of uh, the kids at Kent State in 1970. The university now is not only a place of a rite of passage for American youth to become adults and pair and learn and things of this sort, it now also becomes something that's seen as a site of contestation where political forces collide, usually students from the left attempting to do things like kick ROTC off of their campus, protest the war, pull the levers of university power, occupy Columbia University, right? Hell yeah. In 1968, along that with happens. the Black Panthers and others. So we're familiar with this story. Yeah. But I our... mean, here's a question. Um, I know that McCarthyism kicked out the genuine radicals, and a lot of this was a counter-reaction to that, but 
I think in retrospect, you know, even on the left, a lot of these student movements are sort of, uh, shall we say, caricatured or like not, they don't, they don't get a lot of respect in terms of what they either, both what they believed politically and how radical that actually was and what they achieved politically. Like I've seen some documentaries and you probably have too about the rise of individualism in the 1960s and 70s and how that kind of became a very neoliberal phenomenon turned completely in service of capital. So um, I don't know, you want to stick up for these folks here? Well, I think that a lot of the reason why it's easy to caricature uh, student movements uh, now and certainly project that into the past is because the real gains that were won were won so many decades ago. So, you know, if you're, you're talking about this individualization that happens in the 1960s, right, the, uh, uh, the hippie generation turns into the me generation, the hippies turn into the yippies, the cycle of struggle dies down, uh, turns into a much more individualistic one. And so I, I take your point to the extent that a lot of these radicals end up falling back into academia and actually uh, becoming a, you know, left liberal force within academia that's much attacked, you know, and maligned by people on the right today. Because a lot of these folks, when, you know, they were done occupying buildings and, you know, done protesting and the Vietnam War was over, they had this great education and all this experience, but they didn't want to go be Joe Sixpack, right? They wanted to go and, and get a very fancy high prestige job, which many, many of them did. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the greater point is that before that process happens, real gains were won. They did not stop the Vietnam War, but they did manage on many campuses to kick the ROTC out, which was a uh, is a group that basically tries to funnel people into the um, military system out of college. Uh, they did great protests, some of them successful, trying to get military industrial funding off of campuses. Uh, and then I think super important uh, was were the massive struggles that opened up gender studies departments, uh, African-American studies departments, uh, you know, all sorts of like decolonial or uh, colonial studies departments. Uh, these were not given to students because they asked nicely or because some nice administrator decided that, oh, all this black history in the United States has been erased for all these years. Let's create a nice department so that people can study about it. No, they were forced. In, in, at CUNY, the City University of New York, the African-American Studies Department was forced by students occupying it in the 1970s. This is a plot by the Frankfurt School. Yes, it's, uh, it was a cultural Marxist thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the Frankfurt School forced them. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, they, they went into exile in New York. Perhaps you can talk about that mm. later. A uh, university in exile. And that's uh, from New York, actually, where all the, the media uh, is. That's how they were able to spread their tentacles, if mm. you can imagine, across mm -hmm. the United States and the globe. Yes, their protocols. Yes, they had protocols. The old man and their protocols. <laughs> Cultural Marxism. <laughs> the whole thing is crazy. Uh, I mean, this was also an international phenomenon. You there Around 68... There are uprisings all over the world, often starting at universities. Um, in Mexico, there was uh, an entire summer of struggle that kicked off with anti-imperialist demonstrations supporting Cuba and uh, against the, the bombing of Vietnam. And the police repression of those, uh, those demonstrations and those occupations kind of snowballed and spread to secondary schools and high schools, um, spread to working class neighborhoods. To the point when there was a, a pre-revolutionary situation in Mexico City um, that continued for so long that the Mexican state literally just decided to kill all the students one day, uh, like Jesus. hundreds. No one knows exactly how know. many, yeah. but because they were very good at covering up how many they killed. But in the hundreds, 
um, in, in 68. Live fire into a crowd of demonstrators. And, uh, and you saw similar, similar reactions all over the world. Uh, you saw similar things throughout South America, Colombia, and Argentina. The university has always been sort of like a separate social class that um, tends to be the one that is the most anti-authoritarian when the state gets too much power, too dictatorial. And as a result of that, in a lot of places, travel police aren't allowed on campuses. And in Greece and Colombia, um, I'm not sure where else, but it's, it's pretty common that there's kind of a, a privileged uh, zone of political activity that's only in universities. So here's a question then, is because we were talking about, you know, SJWs as early as before the founding of this country. Is there something uh, structural about the university that encourages radical or forward-thinking activities? I would argue that um, this conception of the free exchange of ideas is obviously kind of a joke nowadays because it's this kind of right-wing hobby horse that's used in order to actually undermine uh, left-wing speech all over the place. But I think there is something real and something powerful about people coming together in an environment and talking things out, talking literature, talking politics, talking culture, talking arts, talking science. And that, I think, is, you know, in our idealized version of the university, the best that it can be. And it has been that for a lot of people uh, for a lot of uh, time. I think when you, part of the dangers of the university, and this is where we're going to get to the backlash, part of the danger of the university is that it did become that with the democratization of it in the 60s and 70s. It was no longer an upper crusty uh, way, uh, an upper crusty institution that recreated a ruling class. It actually became a place where normal, everyday, you know, working class and middle class kids, you know, and professors could come together and bounce ideas around. And what we saw in the 70, 60s and 70s was that that's very dangerous. Right? For power. Yeah. I mean, the kinds of uh, violence, the kind of state violence that the state met these kids with makes me, you know, it's a pretty good argument for the stakes being very high and the university actually playing a pretty significant role in society and in where society's going, no? I'd say so. And I to get to my structural and functionalist argument... Whether it was in the Middle Ages, whether it was in early America, or whether it was up to the 60s and 70s, or up until today, the university has, has functioned as a way to produce knowledge, but also to produce people who use that knowledge. And they produce people to do certain things. So it was produced to make priests at one point in time, now it's produced to make doctors, lawyers, coders, and things of that sort. Now, of course, if you have this site of contestation, you know, as you say, with, and Andy was talking about, where state violence is brought to bear against the people inside of that, you are going to have a backlash by the state, by capital, by right-wing actors who are going to try to shut that down. So soon after the 60s and 70s, and now into the 80s and 90s, the aughts and today, you see this massive backlash that's echoed in what you were talking about with these SJWs, this conception of the college as a very unserious political place where kids take things, you know, way, way too seriously. They're, they're way too into, I don't know, pronouns or whatever the case may be. Um, that was a concerted backlash and also a backlash that tracked with changes within the economy, politics, and culture of this country. Because it's not, it should not be a surprise that when neoliberalism arises in the 70s and the 80s, that's when the university starts to shift. Those freedoms start to come under attack. And ultimately, and this is the important point, and the only reason I brought up the fucking Middle Ages, is that the autonomy of 
departments, right, which were run as the chairperson being the first among equals, right? Professors basically self-managing the running of their departments and the provost and president of a university typically being a very distinguished older professor, right? What you start to see is the bureaucratization of these universities. You start to see, you know, a very top-heavy group of administrators arrive. You start to see funding cut for public universities. You start to see places like California, which is by the Constitution of California, I believe, supposed to be tuition-free, now having, I think it's something like $15,000 worth of quote-unquote fees every year, right, to get around this tuition thing. You start to see the liberal arts, especially in the last 20 years, uh, language programs being cut, and everybody talking about STEM programs, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, as opposed to German or art or history or politics or political economy, whatever the case may be. This actually is the hand of capital and the state, I think very consciously, but also very quietly working to destroy one of these last vestiges of thought and idea in this society. Not to idealize the university, right? Because ultimately, the university has always been to produce workers, all right, or always been to reproduce classes, right? However, when you see corporate money going into universities and then ele corporations electing their own uh, chairs, right? You were talking about this in the majority report recently, B, uh, I think, and you see, um, you know, all these uh, liberal arts programs being cut uh, just for these, you know, very bare and very technical sort of uh, not very well-rounded educational uh, requirements for the students and certainly the rise of uh, for-profit universities like Trump University, mm. something has shifted in the way that we understand higher education. Yeah. And that shift very much tracks with the, the political and economic shifts that we've seen over these years. Now, how much of that is, it's like which came first, the chicken or the egg? How much of that is a response to a shifting economy? And how much of that uh, sort of contributes to that neoliberal shift? Because I know... Um, <laughs> When I went, to, when I was in college, like Columbia is still very principled about how, you know, you're getting a broad liberal arts education in undergrad and they're teaching you how to think and how to, you know, come up with your own ideas and process the news and all that shit. And if you want to learn a trade, you have to shell out a bunch of money for grad school. And while that's a really nice idea and something I believe everyone should have access to in practice, it tends to favor the students who are already very well off because, uh, you know, not everyone can afford to go to grad school. College itself is already really expensive. I know when I graduated college, I struggled for a long time figuring out what I could do for money in the world, and they did not help me at all with that whatsoever. Yeah, the chicken or the egg thing is difficult, which is why I, I use the term functionalism, which is a really great cop-out because it simply says that the university functions in order to produce a particular social necessity that arises at a given time, right? So I, I'm not even making an argument that one follows the other, but I would say that universities as incubators of ideas and also creators of workers and also of elites will necessarily shift as the economy and culture and politics shift. I think what you see with the neoliberal university, which is the university of today, is really a breakdown of the, the social pact that the university was for these years, you know, when it was this democratized, classical, liberal institution of free thought. I think more and more now it's becoming 
And you see this, the university system is becoming way more crass, it's becoming way more expensive and bureaucratized. What used to be almost a public good used to be almost free when there were grants, you know, and scholarships and included. It was totally free and now it's it's getting too expensive for some working class people. And that happens with the fiscal crisis of the 70s, which kind of brings neoliberalism to New York and was kind of a trial run for the rest of America. Yeah, open enrollment has ended. Uh, un- unsurprisingly, yeah, that's right. that's a history that people should know about because, uh, you know, we've heard a lot of uh, centrist Democrats talk about, how, oh, free college education, that's some crazy pie-in-the-sky shit, when actually we had that up until very recently. Every single one of my aunts and uncles on my one side of the family and most of them on the other side and both of my parents went to a state university of New York school and almost all of actually every single one of them walked away debt free from that. We're talking about people who went to college in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Now, even at a public school now, think about how what percentage of people, young people walks away debt free. And again, this is not just that the universities are no longer seen as a public good. And that social pact is broken down, right? That this is something that we consider to be a public good that will be offered for cheap or free, you know, to all people, right, in, in this country. Um, it also, I think, shows that um, the university um, is becoming another place where, unlike that guild system that we saw, that sur- and that survives into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and in some case up until today with tenured professors, right? The university was also one of the last places that had a kind of old-timey, cooperative, non-market way of managing itself. And I think that, you know, if if power abhors a vacuum, capital abhors a vacuum of profit. This is a spooky story. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Could people hear the thunder and lightning? So, so yeah, I I think that um, basically, you know, bringing market forces into the university is a great way, you know, not just to... Uh, change what the university does, you know, when you're pumping money into certain programs and taking them out of others, right? But it also is a way of, um, you know, the same sort of financialization that has been happening under neoliberalism for the last 40 years can now take place in a university setting. And I think there's, what, $11 trillion worth of student debt right now in the United States? That is a massive amount Sounds of interest right. that banks and other and lenders are making. And, you know... Yeah, assuming they ever collect it, which is not a given at this point it's a huge bubble right now and we'll see if it actually bursts but i think you guys take my point right which is that the university is now shedding this kind of uh it was always kind of false but this kind of like hallowed glow of uh, you know free exchange and old-timey traditional liberal values and has become much more a market-driven device much more something that's based on giving you very rudimentary skills instead of a broad classical education and is also something that's trapping more and more people in debt and also not even matching them anymore with the kind of jobs that it used to you know when uh it was a ticket into the quote-unquote middle class we don't see that happening anymore even for doctors and lawyers at this point. definitely not in this transition to a more bureaucratized, financialized, neoliberal, expensive model of education, was there any attempt to resist on the part of the old guard acad- academics? I think you've seen in general a, an attempt to try to keep these privileges uh, and power that these folks have traditionally had. And I think that 
you in so, in many cases departments still have a, a strong core of tenured professors but i think if you look at the statistics of how many teachers now in universities are tenured as opposed to adjuncts i think it's flipped now where the majority of people actually teaching classes are contingent low-paid uh, non-contracted um, either graduate students or adjunct professors and many of these people have to teach four or five classes a semester and still not be able to get by. So I think that, you know, it's that privilege and power still exists for a small amount of people, but it's being eroded. And I, I'm, I think the struggle is not going to come from that old guard uh, tenure track, right? That's still sitting there in their sinisters up there. It's going to come from a, a basically adjuncts who are highly exploited at this point in time. And I think importantly, students. And then we've seen a bit of fight you know over the years for students trying to reclaim some sense of what the university is and also trying to change what it actually does and how it operates yeah so when i started going to university in the, the late 2000s there was a number of emerging struggles around the austerity that was taking place on a state level on a city level on a national level um, where universities were getting more expensive to live initially i went to a suny school and there uh, began to be a centralization of the suny system more standardization, more investment in the kinds of things that make more money for a school, like uh, sports stadiums, for instance, and, uh, and, and rises in, in tuition fees. And there was some struggle at the SUNY school I went to. Shortly afterwards, I went to the new school in, uh, in New York, which Call has, back. which has, uh, <laughs> you know, and that's why I'm hanging out at this new school occupation all the time, like some weird old guy. I'm like, mm -hmm. I have, I have like a little bit of an excuse. I'm an alumni. <laughs> Uh, You're not that old. Come yeah. on. I get older. The student occupiers stay the same age. Yeah, compared to these kids, I'm incredibly old, and they they have pointed it out. What does that make me like? Uh, I don't know. Oh I'm practically God. dead by their. Uh... Like this is the most selfish observation ever. But when I went with my DSA people on Mayday to uh, sing some songs and uh, try to keep the morale up at the new school occupation, I was like, man. They look like children to me. Like I, I, I've gone through my life thinking that it wasn't that long ago that I was a college kid trying out my, uh, you know, lofty political ideas or you know just doing drugs and having sex with terrible people. But actually, that was like ten years ago. Mm -hmm. So, good job, kids. Way to make me contemplate my death. These kids are smart, though. I gotta say, like I'm, I kind of like, like all of us our age, we fall victim a little bit to this, uh, this propaganda about sjw's and hysterical campus libs or something i like, want to believe it's not cause, true because you like you yeah. see some like you you'll they'll always like distribute these vids of like some very you know basically th this has been going on since pcu mm -hmm. which was a movie that came out in, like 94 oh, or something with jeremy piven who francis fox piven yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know like, it, and rush really... limbaugh would always find these examples of like one feminist group making kind of like an overreactive overreactive statement and like blow that up as if that's what feminism is and that's what what college activism is and that's still continuing but you know now we have like trump and kanye talking about it so it's <laughs> oh it's, kanye it's kind of like uh talk about feeling old it's you know? come yeah. to a head even though nothing's really changed i mean uh, i was very impressed with their level of engagement oh yeah sure. it was great like, yeah for sure well andy doesn't this get to uh you were talking about suny right but then you started going to the new school the new school has its own sort of particular history, right? When it comes to this, uh, the university in exile and a, a different sort of model of education traditionally. 
Well, without going too much into the backstory of the new school, because I don't really know it, uh, it's it's got like this, you know, social research tradition, this, uh, you know, more or less Marxist tradition. And throughout the 2000s, there was a shift in the school with the appointment of uh, Bob Carey as president. Bob Carey is an ex-senator from Nebraska. War criminal. He is a literal war criminal. He, uh, I guess, unconvicted. So, but there are is a memorial to him in Vietnam. Listen, to the Ki- people that he killed. If Kissinger Jesus. got a got a Nobel Peace Prize, right? We can for sure say that Bob Carey is a war. Well, I criminal. hope Trump get, gets one too. You know, just yeah. to continue to delegitimize the concept of the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, I would, yeah. I thought you were talking about stringing him up, and I was going to say you can't say that about the president on a broadcast. But uh, go on. No, no, no strings. Um, no strings attached. <laughs> <laughs> Not for our president. So, so Bob Carey, uh, throughout the 2000s, um, shifted the the mission of the school away from this social research into Parsons, which was a fine arts school, and he shifted Parsons from a fine arts school into a design and fashion school. Um, so, you know, which is a very good example of how the you know the uh, the the content of the school, the um, you know the uh, yeah, it's more about learning a trade. That and also the aesthetics. It's more about Mm. aesthetics than art, than creativity and deep thought. And use that money to uh, both to... He would argue that it was to subsidize the humanities aspects of the New School. But also he used that money to tear down the New School for Social Research building and build the university that is currently occupied today, Mm -hmm. the the UC, with with student housing on top, which is obviously a huge moneymaker at 14th Street and 5th Avenue. Um, towards the end of the 2000s, the, the faculty was getting really mad at the decisions Bob Carey was making, including packing the board of trustees with his rich friends. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were conservatives. One, one of them one was of on them the was board a, of yeah. L3 Communications, which is a major military contractor. So you started to see some kind of like uh, SDS. There's like a group that actually called themselves SDS. Yeah, after like the, the SDS of the of 60s, SDS, yeah. making these anti-imperialist protests towards Bob Carey. But it really came to a head uh, in 2008 when, um, I don't even know what happened, like Kerry appointed himself provost or something like that. I think he went through about five provosts in a year and finally just said, I'll be president and provost, which caused a complete rebellion. So this is a big reveal, but actually this is when Andy and I met about nine years ago or so, was in the course of these struggles. Uh, So that's actually how I know the man and I know him to this day. Antifada lore for you there. That's right. So yeah, there it was, as you said, you know, Bob Carey trying to throw his weight around in the university and the professors, right, essentially, what do they do? They, uh... They had a vote of no confidence. Right, yeah. Um, which didn't take them anywhere. So some radical student groups met and decided to take some kind of action. And uh, basically some international students who had the experience of occupying schools in Europe, I think this is a tradition that we sort of lost in the United States, uh, maybe... I'm not sure because police started really cracking down on occupations or something like that. Uh, international students said, this is what you do. You, you go into a room, you build a barricade, you say, we're not leaving. You have some demands, you take over the space. And this was like a crazy idea to me. <laughs> what? Um, but the guy spoke so confidently and he had a great accent. I won't say what it is. But Andy, I'm just a consumer. I'm just buying my education. Why would I try to disrupt the workings of my own education when I, I'm paying so much for this valuable service? Is this Sam C- Who is that, Sam Cedar? Or? That's just average, like, okay. American student. I don't know why he has a Sam Cedar. Sam voice, would but... never say that. But no, but, but the university is more and more in the United States and this is again, to get back to what I was saying, seen as something that you consume, right? It's like a service. 
right? Not it's you know this endeavor that expands your mind necessarily, right? But it's something that you pay for and you expect a return yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, so, an increasingly shitty service. So yeah, you, yeah. you had students like me who just you know I understood that the new school was supposed to be very radical and cool and prestigious, but I didn't really have any emotional attachment to it. So to take some sort of action against the president was a lot more interesting than you know the paper on Nietzsche that I was writing. <laughs> I guess I was trying to get at earlier, um, talking about that neoliberal shift, if this is like just something that sort of happens naturally as the result of uh, underlying material forces, or if it's like, a if it was a conscious decision on the part of people like Bob Carey to make this shift in the way universities are run. Both. Does, do either of you know what the Powell memo was? No. Tell oh, us. Wow, the Powell memo. This, we'll probably come back to this on the show, but to make it very brief, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Powell, I forget his first name because we're doing this on the fly, wrote, he sat down with a business roundtable in the nineteen early 1970s and basically described to them in detail all the ways in which, as he called, free enterprise was being eroded in the United States. And he said that business needs to organize itself with conservative politicians in order to fight back against the corrosion of free market ideals. And what was the locus that he saw where most of these things were happening was the university. So business, when it reorganized itself uh, in the 1970s and 80s, after it had been flat on its back after the, after the Great Depression, does a concerted fight back against all sorts of you know institutions like unions, right? Like all sorts of public goods uh, that were considered free and now have to be paid for. And they certainly had the university as their target. It's when you start to see the first, you know, um, distinguished uh, chair of such and such from Stanford University being funded by some billionaire somewhere. And the Koch brothers nowadays are the real embodiment of that. And it was a conscious effort. Now, I'm not saying that Bob Kerry went there purposefully in order to like create the per the ideal neoliberal university, but he comes out of a culture where the university needs to be reformed. I think a lot of it had to do with competing with NYU because mm -hmm. uh, NYU obviously became incredibly rich through just the buildings that it happened to own when that area of New York became the most expensive place in the world to own property. So NYU basically became like this real estate front, buying up lots of buildings, dorm buildings, hospitals. It became incredibly prestigious to go there, and it also started to like sort of own New York City. Yeah. And New School wasn't content being this like moldy old Marxist school a few blocks away. Hmm. It wanted to brand itself in some sort of competitive way. I think Bob Carey was brought on as a prestigious president hmm. to do that, and in the process, he wasn't very interested in the content of the education. He was interested in the branding of the school. They spent a lot of money on rebranding it, um, which, by the way, it's rebranded since then. It was all money wasted. Oh, great. To the point when no one even really talks about the radical legacy of the school anymore. Mm. That's like a forgotten myth. That was huge on, on my mind when I, I took the decision to, to take graduate classes there. Uh, because a lot of my radical friends had gone there for that reason before me. And uh, I was like, yeah, if I'm going to you know, go to graduate school, I should certainly go to a radical Marxist place. That makes a lot of sense. I think that if the struggles, maybe we didn't even really know it back then, because there was a lot that went into those early, those first occupations. You know, there was the crisis happened like right immediately when I joined in, in 2008. So the financial crisis happens in the U.S. You have the bailout of the banks. You have Obama being elected president real fast. And then the occupation comes right on the heels of that. I think that being 
having this sense that you were in this institution that had a radical legacy, you know, that had a critical legacy, we felt compelled as we were, you know, just burying our heads in the books, you know, Marx and his and Engels and his uh, and the people that came after them trying to figure out what this crisis meant and how it affected us. We looked to the university as a way to understand that and to react to that crisis, but there was nothing there. It was a it was an institution in chaos. So we, of course, being juvenile, thought that there was an A to B between crisis and um, social uh, upheaval. We were like, oh well, let's use this opportunity, as Andy said, you know, not just to sort of push this very particular issue of trying to you know beat back this Bob Kerry monster and all of his you know corporate raiders on the board of directors, but let's make a point about what kind of school we want there to be. Uh, and also start to react to this crisis of capitalism that we know is going to cause so much suffering. We did it in a very, again, kind of, I would say, in retrospect, juvenile, shallow way. And and what way was that? Occupy the fuck out of shit. Yeah, there's moonings. Uh, there was, there's moonings, yeah. yeah. Drug use. Perhaps. It was it was very moonings. much like a, uh, you know, Animal House style college party where we were like fucking with the dean and the dean was getting angrier and angrier like there's literally meetings when the oh when the dean was shaking his fist at us but but the pranks Damn were all like stupid kids very aesthetically ultra left pranks instead yeah. of you yeah. know like fratty <laughs> right Wait, like if, if jim belushi was like, we were chugging uh, bottles of whiskey though that, that was yeah, the we, same we were doing Marxist yeah. jim belushi oh that's a great character it was like Where revenge of the nerds and animal house and the dreamers combined <laughs> or lost nice. yeah there was the time when uh, Bob Kerry showed up to try to talk to the occupiers and he ended up getting chased down the street and getting uh, rotten vegetables thrown at him. Which is uh, either funnier or uh, less funny, depending on your perspective, when you consider he only had one leg. He had one leg blown off in Vietnam. Oh, my God. Ah, If I had been part of that uh, stream of people yelling obscenities at him, running down uh, Fifth Avenue, if I had been five or six feet away from that as it was all going down, I might feel really bad about myself today. Well, you were, you were in good company. Uh, I mean, you would have been in good company. Uh, Had one of the uh, most famous philosophers in the world was allegedly there as well. So There was a lot of hate. Blind item. Uh-huh. There was a lot of fun going on, too. I mean, it was it was very heady times. These were connected to the times when I talked about that crazy fight that happened on Cook Street. Like That was like the yeah, tail yeah, end yeah. of that wild time in our lives. Yeah, that's but... uh, right about around when I met you. So we were very juvenile, uh, but it was also very resonant and... The rhetoric that came out of these occupations, um, sort of out of a reaction of the student activism that uh, we thought was sort of along the lines of what the university wanted, like demanding more transparency, demanding sustainable development, demanding like a student on the board of trustees, uh, basically demanding more representation in a, a structure that we didn't really have any faith in. Um, there was the development of the idea of not having demands, of not asking for the university better, of not asking for student power, but but asking for basically an insurrection against the logic of the school itself. And this led to kind of like a smaller wildcat occupation, which Bob Carey completely overreacted to, calling it basically a terrorist threat, yeah. having all the students like arrested and beat up and pepper sprayed, I mean, which eventually led to him not being the president of the school anymore. It definitely didn't help that y'all were dressed like some... Scary anarchists That's uh, how we anarchist standing on top of the I building and dress. dropping was... your anarchist flags and reading your reading your treatises into the megaphone. I mean, I thought it was really cool Listen, when Sean showed cool. me. That, but... that, that's just you know the style you wouldn't understand. You're too young. But in 2008, <laughs> 2009, 
you know, wearing all black with a balaclava with a black and red flag and hanging signs off roofs. It's just what kids did. You know, it's like yeah. nowadays they it's play with, uh, what are those, pogs? You know, the kids are on the pogs today. <laughs> Back then, we fucking, you know, just threw insurrections. I think thing. you're thinking of porgs. I think you're thinking of Tide Pods. Ah, yes. Mm. Damn, I always get those things confused. Yeah, it's an easy mistake to make. Okay, so jumping to uh, the resonance of this stupid bullshit we were doing, uh, basically the the literature of it, the images of it, um, spread a lot in the left. And folks in California, in the UC system, where tuition was going to be raised 30%, but this is like in the form of fees, basically. Basically, it would cost 30% more. Uh, all at once, or like over the course of two or three years. Um, Severe austerity. Yeah. Uh, that People saw the tactic of occupation as a, a way to push back against this. So there was an occupation at Santa Cruz that, that lasted for a few days. It's a very small one. That was uh, repeated the next semester with a simultaneous occupation at Berkeley. And you started to see the tactic of occupation spreading throughout the UC system mm-hmm. and increase in more or less militant ways, sometimes very militant, sometimes more like soft occupations, teach-ins, and that kind of thing. In the end, it was semi-effective. I think there was a tuition freeze for, for a few years. Um, how did that feel for you guys to watch that happening after you uh, got the ball rolling in such I, a substantial way? We don't claim credit for anything on this show, uh, not even... Um, being able to clean our rooms, which we don't even do. But, uh, we, we would not ever claim to take credit for that, babe. It is true that when the Wildcat occupiers got out of jail a few days after the illegal occupation of the new school, one uh, professor, David, David Graber, was there to greet them when they came out and then partied with them uh, that night and the day after. And it was nice. Graber, several years later, who helped to spur uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement Oh, that I think then I've heard of that. took what happened in a small scale of the new school and then a larger scale in California and put it, I think, to everyone's surprise, on a national scale. Uh, with International, really? Yes. Yeah, well, there were there were like squares, occupations and stuff happening all over the place. But yes, like joining with an international current of this sort of horizontalist, space-driven, occupation-driven uh, resistance to austerity and in some cases, capitalism itself. Yeah, the, the tactic of occupation... It sent a message to people that we live in this world that we don't own, that we just pass through, and it belongs to someone someone else. Even if it's a public space, it's managed by these politicians that we don't vote for. We don't they don't care about us. And the idea of occupation, whether it be at the school that you go to or in a public park, it spoke to people in this way that made them want to have their lives be have some authority over their lives. They wanted to be in a place and actually talk to people. And actually share food with people and create politics not in the the alienated way of voting every once in a while, but politics in the very properly political way of talking to some strangers and figuring out what you want and what mm. you want a situation to be. And I think that's what resonated so much. Not the, you know, the demands of like get rid of Bob Carey or let's have more student power or something like that, but the the act of occupying itself. I don't want to be too utopian about it, because obviously you're occupying within a capitalist world, even if they let you stay forever, you still have to rely on on the... You, you, you're still a part of the capitalist structure until there's a revolution. But it gave people a little bit of utopian, like a utopian glimmer in their eye of what life could be like. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, um, you know, a lot of people have sort of mocked and criticized Occupy Wall Street 
because it didn't achieve the extremely broad, open-ended goals of, like, ending capitalism. <laughs> but I don't think anyone thought that they were realistically going to do that. Like, I, as I understood it, it was much more about what you just said, you know, creating an alternate vision of how things could be. Well, by the time, it's interesting, by the time that Occupy Wall Street happens, I had dropped out of graduate school, not merely because I was crushed under debt and needed to, you know, get a job, but also because I saw coming down the pike this um, adjunct adjunctification, I suppose you would call it, of uh, higher education and didn't really see a place yeah. for myself. So I was already on my way to making the best decision I've made, which is to do what a lot of my family did and get a trade. So yeah, I was you already... Were already an adjunct at this. You've been yeah. adjuncting at this yeah, point and in I, time. And I saw no future in making $3,500 a class and trying to live in New York City. I was shocked. I was shocked when you told me how little money you made because, you know, it still carries, like, the, the even the word professor still has a certain mystique about it and I was brought up to value education above all else pretty much because um, my grandpa Posner was a professor and uh, I just assume like oh you're teaching college classes you're so educated and smart you must be fairly compensated for that. Well, of course, I, th I think that that's this hangover again from this sort of uh, guild system tenured, uh, you know, public good conception of the free thinking university that, you know, has in many ways gone away. But by the time I'm at this place, right, and, and I'm like kind of exiting that world and don't want to complete a degree and just want to go get a job and all that good stuff, this Occupy Wall Street thing comes up. But by that point in time, if several years later, I was so jaded by this conception of Occupy because all it did was like, you know, throw some people in jail and shit popped off in California. And I was like, oh, this is never going to amount to anything. And then it happened. I think, Andy, you were at some of the meetings. I never went to the meetings for it. But like a couple days after it started, friends of mine who I trust politically started coming and like, yo, something really real is happening. I'm like, what, from like an Occupy thing? They're like, no, no, shit's like really real. You got to go down there. So like a few days later, I went, I'm like, holy shit. I saw kind of what Andy was, was talking about, the, these possibilities uh, that you saw in sort of the interstitial uh, ability to create and take new space and create new relationships just spread out in this massive uh, sea of people doing the stupid twinkle thing and doing the people's mic thing. And it seems kind of absurd again, looking back on it. But at that moment in time, it did feel like a real break. And these occupies popped up all over the country, you know, almost, uh, you know, almost simultaneously right after that, you had all over the country, um, thousands and thousands of people being inspired by this vision. So I think there is something to that, right? When that something like that resonates in that way, I'm not saying it's the end all and be all tactic or if it's the strategy or the goal that we should have right now. But I think like Andy said, it does flip the conception of what our everyday life is and what it could be upside down. I mean, let's not forget that the goal was the overthrow of the 1% by the 99%. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, as vulgar as that formulation is, I, sure. I think at its heart, it was about class war, and I could have articulated that better. And obviously, a lot of the people that participated in it, because of the vulgarness of that slogan, went on to become, you know, alt-right, Trump supporter type <laughs> people. So that, you know, that was a problem of its, like, populism. Uh, but I think at its, its heart, it was, it was about more than just occupation. But the tactic, I think, was what really uh, resonated. Yeah, I think they also could have done a better job explaining to normal people... Um, what exactly they were trying to do 
Like um, nobody had any I fucking know, idea what they were trying well, to do. Yeah, that is one problem that one one critique I would make of it. But like, when you're looking at a list of demands, like you know, overthrow the ruling class and institute full communism, you're like, well, they couldn't possibly achieve that. They couldn't possibly believe they're going to achieve that. So what are they doing this for? And I think you've articulated some very good reasons that I wish uh, were more widely known at the time. But everyone had their reasons. You know, some people were there for legalized marijuana or whatever, you know. Yeah. Some people were there to drum. Some people were there <laughs> to, end, to end the Fed. Yeah. Jam on the bongos. So, I mean, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Occupy as um, part of my personal history as well, because I was not that politically engaged before that. Um, I mean, I did Food Not Bombs in high school and that and protested the Iraq war. And that was kind of the high watermark of my political engagement for quite some time. You hated bombs. That's all you knew. Bombs, yes. bad, yeah. shitty, vegan, dumpster dive food. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know what? It wasn't shitty. We made some delicious food at Food Not Bombs and uh, Listen, passed some, it out in the Bushnell Park in Hartford, some, Connecticut. Some rotten cabbage can go a long way when you put your anarchist mind to it. Exactly. When Occupy happened, which was not that long after we met, yeah, a couple of years. it was, and I got to be part of it, it was very exciting to you me and to a lot of people. You were trying to meet David Graeber, but you met Sean <laughs> I'm a poor man's Graeber. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. For all the student debt that I racked up, I think for me it was personally worth it to go through that experience, meet those people, not only learn so much about the world uh, collectively with folks uh, in that setting, but also kind of wet my feet at trying to change the world through these occupations. That'll something that, that's something that'll always stick with me and I think kind of grounded my my mature sort of political life myself so yeah. i wouldn't give it up for the world yeah i feel the same way and just to bring it forward uh in history a little bit to now occupy kind of wound down a little bit and everyone was wondering what was going to happen next and a very unsuccessful general strike <laughs> oh god that was a fucking <laughs> oh, disaster oh god i remember that i did not participate I would think I was writing seven blog posts a day at that uh, point in the time. The working class wasn't ready. What I if they called a general no, strike and nobody came? No, but um, one thing that did happen was uh, Superstorm Sandy hit not that long afterwards, and uh, a lot of the same networks that were formed during Occupy Wall Street, it seemed like a no-brainer. They sprang into action to do mutual aid, and um, I went down to the Gravesend houses on Coney Island right after the storm and uh nobody had been there yet not fema not anyone and we got there the same day um a little bit later these uh this big christian group from pennsylvania came in a big fancy bus they were amish and they were they were not they were not amish they were some psychopathic there was some description of evangelical Christian. I mean, I'm not well versed in the different t- kinds of Christian. They were monster people. They, uh, they did ask us if we believed in Jesus, and I was like, mm, I'm gonna hold my tongue. It's not about me. But like, it was two very different models of aid work or charity, as they would call it. But two very effective models because nobody else was there. The government bureaucracy wasn't there yet. So that was. I think a really cool, a, a, yet another way to show our, how our, our alternate vision for society could work in the present moment as well as the future. The 
You mean the Occupy Sandy mutual aid aspect, not the uh, Pennsylvania psychopathic Protestant <laughs> Christians rolling in in there, gleaming yeah. uh, van filled with racks of you know pretzels, pretzels and uh, coal. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the people cared all that much who was helping them at that point in time. They still got to eat a chicken dinner that night. I'm which being, was I'm being flipped. Pretty cool. I'm being flipped, but yeah, like like. Um, Mutual aid, I think, is a very, very important thing, and mutual solidarity. And, yeah, and, uh, like, the the Occupy people actually went there and asked people what they wanted and what they needed from us before just, like, rolling in, like, I'm going to help you now, which is, I think, a key difference between charity and mutual aid, wouldn't you say? I'd say so, yeah. And, I, and the hurricane relief efforts that were done on the grassroots level um, horizontally and very, very effectively in those, you know, seven to ten days right after the hurricane could not have happened if those uh, networks of solidarity created during Occupy Wall Street, you know, had not arisen. And, yeah, you're right, it, that network network was tapped into. Uh, since then, unfortunately, I feel like um, a lot of that energy is scattered. But I think that, you know, you can see now a reflection of that politically, uh, not only in rhetoric, but also in this sort of rising left populism. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are critical of Bernie Sanders from the left for a variety of reasons. I also have some left critiques of him, but I think at the end of the day, his incredible campaign and successes, I mean, he didn't get elected, but, you know, knock on wood for all we know, he still could. Um, this is the result, not the cause, of rising left populist sentiment and a growing awareness of class politics in America. I mean, he's been on the political scene for a long, long time talking about the same stuff pretty much all the way through. And it's not a coincidence that he caught on at this particular moment in time. Um, if anything, I think it shows how electoral politics are a trailing indicator, to use a phrase that I like to use a lot of, um, social movements and not the other way around. Not to mention that that bourgeois politician appropriated from the social movements the concept of the 99% versus the 1%, that capitalist pig. We know. We know Bernie. Is he so, talking about himself? Or? Yeah, that oh, was okay. himself talking about himself. <laughs> we know. We know you're very conflicted. It's, it's all right. Bernie, uh, is, I don't think there's any conflict in his head, to be honest. I think he's a very driven yeah, you know. social democrat. Yeah. I mean, we can have long debates about him, but I do think that it would be impossible to see the Bernie phenomenon arising if there hadn't been, not just rhetorically, but also in action, mass movement within this country, in the universities and in the streets, in order to try to recreate and create new visions of how everyday life and the world can be ordered. Um, that he was, that his movement later tapped into in an in electoral way. Yeah. So basically, I guess what Sean is saying is that when Bernie Sanders is elected president and subsequently dissolves all the other branches of government and implements some sort of uh, Maoist, uh, top-down, full communist state, you will have Sean and Andy to thank. And You're welcome. And finally, his wife can build the school that she wants to build, and uh, <laughs> we can occupy that school. That's right. Hell yeah. <laughs> Let the circle be unbroken. Let a thousand occupations bloom.